Good morning. There are more of you this morning. Good to see you. My name's Drew. I'm one of the pastors here. Let me add my welcome to Aubrey's. It's great to be with you this morning. Before we look a little bit closer at our passage, will you pray with me? And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. This summer, uh, to recap for those who have been away, our church has been walking through the book of Ephesians. It's this beautiful, fascinating letter written by the Apostle Paul that shows us how God defeated evil in a very ironic way through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And not only that, but the book also shows us how he has called us to demonstrate that victory in our lives. Now, at this point in the letter, it's easy to see why Christians love studying Ephesians so much. Paul speaks glowingly of the church. He says, we are God's masterpiece in chapter 2. His new temple, the place where he dwells and fills. And the cosmic advertisement of his victory to all the powers of evil looking on. It's almost like Paul is that obnoxious relative at the family reunion pinching our cheeks, look how beautiful you are. Look how important you are. Oh, and you're so gifted. It really is enough to make you blush a little bit. Even last week, for those who were with us, as we saw in chapter 4, Paul encouraged us to live in unity and in harmony with one another. We got the feeling that he was speaking to us as an admirer as a friend, as a humble prisoner for the Lord. But in our passage this morning, Ephesians 4, 17, 32, 17 through 32, that Sarah read to us, Paul speaks to us with authority. He's an apostle. That means he's a spokesperson, an eyewitness of the resurrected Jesus. He's Jesus' authorized spokesperson. When we hear the words of Paul from Scripture, we can close our eyes and imagine that the risen Lord Jesus is standing right in front of us, spilling out his heart to us, telling us what we are to do. And we can sense this from Paul's opening word, at least in the ESV that we read from. The opening word is, now, it's a word that parents might use with their children, not to discipline them, but to uh, alert them to specific instruction, right? You lean down, now. Now, Paul says, this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Paul is about to instruct us 
on Christian character. That's what he means by the word walk. It's a Jewish metaphor that describes how people live in every aspect of their daily lives. But it actually goes beyond that. Character is more than just what you do. It's who you are, especially when no one's looking. And here's what the New Testament as a whole says about character. It says that after you believe in Jesus, it's supposed to be your life work. That's central to our life as Christians is the transformation, the changing, the evolution, the progression of our character. The changing of our ways and attitudes and habits of speech to become new people who look more and more like the God who saved them. But how does this happen? This is hard to do. You know, some people spend their life work getting people to change, right? Some of your vocations involve getting people to change, teachers getting students to mature, leaders getting businessmen to get on board with you, right? Getting people to change. How does this happen for us? How is our character transformed? That's what we're going to find out this morning. Look with me, first of all, at the opening verses of our passage. What is Paul saying about the non-Christians of his day? He almost seems to be insulting their intelligence, talking about the futility of their minds, their darkened understanding, their ignorance. And if he were to leave it at that, I suspect that many of us would want to jump up and defend our fellow man. We'd say, Paul, look at Steve Jobs and Stephen Hawking. These people never claimed to be Christians, and yet look at their success. They're brilliant. They're intelligent. They're stunning. But you see, Paul isn't talking so much about intelligence here. He's talking about the heart Do you see in verse 18 what all of their thinking boils down to? It's all due to their hardness of heart. Now, what does he mean? Well, when the Bible talks about the heart, it's referring to the very core of our being, the control center with levers and buttons of all of our actions. We read in Proverbs 4, 23, above all else, guard your heart. And then it says, for everything you do flows from it. That's important. And this is a difficult concept for us to grasp. Because the Enlightenment taught us that to be human is fundamentally to be a thinking thing. Uh, we might recall the words of Rene Descartes, who said, I think, therefore I am. I think, and so I am. And our culture has bought into this logic, hook, line, and sinker. We believe that if we can just think the right things, all of our problems will go away. 
So we solve crime and poverty with education. And we liberate oppressed nations through the spread of of democratic ideas. And you know what? We can even see some of this logic in the church. When we equate holiness and spiritual maturity with biblical knowledge and the study of books alone. But the Bible has a different take on what it means to be human. It says that what makes us human is not fundamentally our thoughts. What makes us human fundamentally is our desires and our affections and our loves. We follow our hearts. That Apple Jacks commercial that we listened to as kids, we eat what we like. That was good theology. <laughs> we do what we want to do. And this is what the great 20th century uh, French writer, Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, if someone speaks French, I just read it. I didn't pronounce it. This is what he said about sailing. If you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to collect wood and don't assign them tasks and work, but rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. And Paul's saying something similar. He's saying that change happens not just by giving the mind new arguments, but also by feeding the imagination new beauties, new realities, new stories. Take, for example, the Gentiles of Ephesus. What were their hearts shaped by? Their hearts were shaped by the stories of their gods. Stories of revenge and sexual adventure and encounter and plunder. I'm a classics major. It's all very entertaining, but it lacks any kind of moral compass. So what Paul says about them in verse 19 is no surprise. They have become callous. Right? What that means is lacking in moral sensitivity. No longer sensitive. No longer sensitive to what's right and wrong. They've become callous and have given themselves up. They plunge themselves into sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of of impurity. I read something recently that said that the three most basic driving forces of humanity are career success, athletic and academic achievement, and sexual conquest. These are the drives that our culture is aiming at when it looks at us. This is the vision of the good life by which we can measure our own success. It's not terribly different from Paul's day. But Christians, Paul says, are to be shaped by a different story. 
Look with me at verse 20 at this sharp contrast, full stop. But that is not the way you learn Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Paul is talking to Gentile converts, pagan converts to Christianity. They're new in the faith. And the life they left behind was the life I just described. They're still living in this context and they're being pulled on either side to return to their former manner of life, their former ways of thinking, the former stories that gave them a vision of the good life. And he's urging them not to go back. How would Paul say this to us today? He'd probably say, stop listening to the stories of the culture, the ones that idolize career success and athletic achievement and academic achievement and sexual conquest. Don't buy their vision of the good life. Find yourself securely in the story of the king. And when we find ourselves in this story, when we believe, when we trust in Christ and are captivated by what God has done for us in Jesus, how he rescued us and brought us into his kingdom, well, we come to possess a new power. It's the power to change. And it's a gift When we believe in Jesus, we're given the Holy Spirit. He comes to dwell in us and make us new. It's a remarkable gift. And yet, as we read further, we learn that this doesn't exactly get us off the hook. Paul talks about this responsibility we have. The first thing he says is to put on the new self. This new humanity, this new way of living, where everything is going, what everything is going to be like in the new creation when God restores all of the peace and justice that we've ever longed for. We are to anticipate that new creation by living like that now. It's like when I look at the weather and it says it's going to rain and I anticipate that. Now, what do I do to anticipate that? Do I just make a check of it in my mind? No. I dress for the occasion, right? I, put, I don't have a raincoat, but I would put on a raincoat. I'd bring an umbrella, and this is what Paul is telling us to do. To dress ourselves with the holiness and righteousness and justice of that new creation now. But it's very hard work. Because what he says is, in order to do this, we have to put off our old self. We have to take off the worldly ways that have crept into our manner of life. And this word for put off is the Greek word apotithemi. And it actually means something much more violent than to just set something aside. It means to violently strip or tear off an article of clothing, so that it's completely destroyed and useless afterward. This is a clean break between the Christian life and the former manner of life. 
I wonder if those people that you hang out with outside of church, would they consider you a cultural chameleon? The, the way you can tell is that if you were to tell them that you were a Christian, would they be surprised? Would they be confused? You know, I think that's the pressure that we have in our culture today. It's to fit in. It's to assimilate. But Jesus said in Matthew 5 that in order for our witness to be powerful, it has to be salty. It has to be different. Christian character takes hard work. Our culture puts a high value on the spontaneous. I know you've noticed this. I mean, a passionate kiss is more romantic than a wedding kiss. Um, a spur-of-the-moment act of charity is much more sacrificial and loving than a weekly or monthly church offering, right? We even make songs about this kind of thing. In the words of Bruno Mars, I'd catch a grenade for ya. <laughs> I'd throw my head on a blade for ya. I jump in front of a train for you. I'm done. <laughs> this, but, but this kind of thing really sweeps us, sweeps us off our feet. It's romantic. It's spontaneous. But here's the thing. Nine times out of ten, the, the people who perform these spontaneous acts of courage and love are those for whom it has become second nature. It's the people who are continually, day by day, living in a community where they are constantly having to give up their own rights and privileges for others and see others as more important than themselves, that they actually grow into the kind of people who, when a grenade is launched, they dive on it and no one's surprised. Let me show you what I mean. Thursday... January 15th, 2009. It's another ordinary day in New York City. But by that evening, people were talking about a miracle. Flight 1549, it's a regular U.S. Airways trip from LaGuardia Airport. It took flight at 3.26 p.m. for Charlotte, North Carolina. The captain's name was Chesley Sullenberger III, and his friends called him Sully, glad to hear you've never heard this story before. <laughs> you can hear it again. He did all the usual checks. Everything was fine until two or three minutes after takeoff when the aircraft ran straight into a flock of Canada geese, right? Both engines were severely damaged and lost power, and the plane at that point was heading north over the Bronx, which was one of the most densely populated cities and areas in the region. So Sully and his co-pilot had to make several major decisions instantly uh, if they were going to save people's lives, both the ones on board and the ones on the ground below. So they could see one or two small airports in the distance, but they knew that at this rate, with no power, it'd be a really big risk for the plane to glide into those airports without maybe landing in a populated area. Uh, they also had the option of landing on the New Jersey Turnpike, 
which was this really busy road leading in and out of the city. But of course, that sounds chaotic as well, right? Not only for the people on the plane, but for the people below. So that left just one option, the Hudson River. Now, from what I've read, it's incredibly difficult to crash land on water. One small mistake, uh, like if the nose of the plane or the wings hit the water unevenly, the plane will flip over and break and sink. Um, But this had to be done. And not only did it have to be done, but it had to be done absolutely perfectly. So they had two or three minutes before impact. Listen to what Sully had to do. He had to shut down the engines. He had to adjust the speed so that the plane could fly for as long as possible without power. He had to get the nose of the plane down to maintain speed and velocity. He had to disconnect the autopilot. He had to activate what's called the ditch system, which seals the plane up and makes it as watertight as possible so that water won't creep in in a water landing. And most important of all, he had to make a sharp left-hand turn so that the plane could be facing south the way the water was running in the river. Then when they were about to land, they had to straighten the plane from the tilt so that it would land flat, level on the water. And once they hit the water, to pull up so that the nose would not plunge under and would keep them afloat and gliding. And he did all of this perfectly. Even afterward, there were some people cold uh, in the water, and he took off his captain's shirt and wrapped it around them. He's a hero. Everyone was safe. New York finally had a, a story that involved a plane that didn't end in tragedy. Everyone was saying it was a miracle. But here's the thing. Was it a miracle? In some sense, it's true. No doubt God had his hand on that plane. And what happened defied all odds. But in another sense, this really wasn't a miracle. It was the result of a lifetime of hard work. How many times had Sully simulated a crash landing? How many hours had he trained? How many early mornings and late nights in order to prepare him for that emergency situation? Countless. Countless. The only way to explain that kind of heroic act is with the word character. It's when you do something so many times that it actually becomes who you are. That, that's what we mean by the phrase second nature. It's something we've done over and over and over again so that in an emergency situation, we can do it in a pinch. This is the kind of character transformation that Paul is talking about. It doesn't happen automatically. It happens through a lifetime of hard work, of blood, sweat, and tears of constant, loyal following of the king, self-denial, turning the other cheek, forgiving on the spot until it becomes second nature and you do it almost without thinking. Now, it's important, I believe, to underline here 
that all of our efforts are fueled by the Holy Spirit. This dress code that Paul is giving us is not a dress code for becoming a Christian, okay? This isn't a dress code that you live up to and then the king lets you in. No, this is a dress code for those who are seated around the dinner table. Every dinner table has dress codes, right? This is that kind of dress code. And here's the thing. Even though it's hard work, God has given us this power in the Holy Spirit. He's the source of our power. We could never change by ourselves. We talked a few weeks ago about the power of prayer and how prayer is the way that we tap into and draw down on God's power. What are these areas of your life that have become habits for you? Death ways that, that Aubrey mentioned earlier that are leading you away from life, away from your spouse, away from your Christian community. The answer is prayer. You must pray. You've been given the Holy Spirit, and the way to draw down on His power is simply to speak with Him and ask Him for it. I want to close by looking at one more gift that God has given to us. Not just the gift of the Holy Spirit, but another gift that's essential for us if we're going to change. And that is the gift of the local church. That's what Paul's talking about in that last paragraph there. He says that we are members of one another. Now that phrase, one another, you'll find that all over the New Testament. Forgive one another. Be kind to one another. Speak to one another in love. How do you learn how to do this apart from the local church? I was talking yesterday with some people who said, uh, who shared the same experience that I have, that it's really easy to be holy when you're reading your Bible in, the, in your room. It's when you walk out of your room and the kids are going crazy and uh, the paper's all over, all over the desk and you're having to deal with other people that it becomes difficult. And what God is teaching us through experiences like these is that our faith is meant to be public. We do have a personal relationship with Jesus, but it's not private. And in order for us to grow and reach maturity, we have to be with others in the church. If you're here this morning and you're a new college student, maybe you've arrived early, this is one of the most important things I think that you can hear, is that if you're wanting to reach maturity in Christ, if you're wanting to grow and to, and to develop into the unique human being that God has called and created you to be, you need to be a part of a local church. It doesn't have to be this one. There are so many good churches here in Harrisonburg. But churches like this exist to encourage each other and to be this family of security where we can grow up into Christ with confidence. As we immerse ourselves in the church, we realize that there are culturally accepted practices, Gentile ways of life, that we must set aside. 
we realize that there are things in the culture that we grew up in that are really admired and treasured and rewarded by our society, but what we must not do. So these really hard things, like telling the truth and avoiding excessive anger and being kind to one another and forgiving each other, these are the things that we can only do in the power of the Spirit in the church. So the good news this morning is that you can change. Some of you are dealing with addictions and habits that seem insurmountable to you, and they're destroying your lives, and you want so badly to be free and liberated from it. The good news is that God has given you a gift. He's given you a gift in the Holy Spirit. He's given you a gift in the church. And he's calling on you now to trust in Jesus, to gaze on him, to admire him, to pray to him, to love him, and by the power of the Holy Spirit to get to work. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.